Hey, well, good morning. All right. All right. That's okay. Good to see you guys this morning. Hey, all right. Thank you. It's good to see you, my friend. Um, hey, everybody. Uh, welcome online as well. Face, uh, Facebook Live is online right now, so good to see you guys. Kind of. I can't see you, but hopefully you can see us. But thank you for coming out here on this um, wintry Sunday morning. For those who don't know, I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point. I also do something else that some of you know about. I am a part-time I guess, part-time uh, basketball coach at Peckway Valley High School. Woo! I was hoping for some kind of woo-hoo or something for that. Okay, yeah. So that, that season just wrapped up this uh, Friday night. We took a trip all the way up toward the Kutztown area and finished that up. That was good to, good to wrap it up. We had a great game there. Um, and so here's what happens. If you've played sports or been in the school world at all, you know, there's always for every season, not just athletics, but also musically or artistically, whenever you're going through a season of work that you're doing, there's always ups and downs with it, right? And that's just the way it is. And that's the same uh, with our basketball team this year. We had some ups and we had some downs. And there are times in the downs where I would look out there, and if I were honest, I would say, I'm not sure that everybody on the floor is giving me everything that they have. It just That's just the way it is. Now, if I'm also honest about myself, when I play basketball, I'd have to say there are times when I didn't give everything I had on the floor. So there isn't judgment, but there is observation. And as a coach, you have to say, sometimes I need to pull you off. But the other day, here's what I remember. All of a sudden, there was something that got into these guys. I don't know what it was. And they all collectively just started giving us everything they had. And the reason I could tell that is we dropped back on defense into a zone, a 2-3 zone. For those who don't know basketball, it doesn't matter. The guys were just standing back there. And the, there was a dead ball, and the guys, the other team was bringing the ball up the court. And so our guys were back in a zone. And every single one of them <sighs> was like that. We were just about five minutes into the game, and every single one was down on their hands and knees and their, their chest. They were trying to get their air, and every single one of them I could see were giving me everything I got or everything that they got, and that was awesome. And so we talked about that, and here's the principle that I learned from that and that we talked about as a team, and it's this, that, and you know this already, that, that well, that's cool. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you the principle. I don't know why we're having a problem with that. Did that was that what's been working the whole time? All right, hold on. This is an exciting principle. Uh, trust me, you're going to want to know this one. Let's see what we can do here. If we can't get it, I'll just tell you what's up. There it is. Woohoo! All right. Let me back up 30 seconds. And here's the principle. Ta-da! Okay, here it comes, hopefully. Maybe. <clears throat> this is not the back's fault. This is my fault now. There we go. Ha-ha. <laughs> How about that? Let's see if this works. So, with a little less, anyway, here it is, that I can't be committed to comfort and impact at the same time. Now, I don't know if you put that together in those words before, but that's what I think I was observing there, that sometimes the guys on the court, in their own preparation for the season, were more committed to comfort than impact, because I don't really want to always push hard. I would rather ease into this a little bit. I don't always want to go through the pain that it takes to get to that high level, because it just costs too much. Can you relate to that at all? I can't. I can't be both committed to comfort and impact at the same time. I can have seasons of both where I'm committed to comfort. And by the way, comfort, I don't mean rest. Okay, hear me on this one. Rest and comfort are different. I'm not asking you to just drive into sheer exhaustion and, and burn yourself out in every area of life. Hear me, I'm talking about comfort, meaning that my priority becomes I want just ease for me. I just want easy things that don't cost me much. That's what I'm talking about versus impact. You can't have it, I can't have it, my guys can't have a commitment to comfort 
and impact at the same time. It just doesn't ever work that way in life. And it doesn't work that way in your family. It doesn't work that way in your academics. It doesn't work that way in your career. It just doesn't ever work that way. There are two, two different things. So as I thought about that, I also thought about this question when it comes to, to this principle, which I think is true. I also applied this principle to my faith, and I asked the question, is this true for my faith? Like, is it true that there are times when I'd actually prefer my faith to be more comfortable than impactful? That I prefer the faith that I have to just kind of ease along with me and fit my priorities. That I'd rather be, be comfortable, and if I'm in a society that happens to identify primarily as Christian and respect me because of my Christian values, I might prefer just to be comfortable, not impactful. And so then I began to ask the question, as I'm reflecting on the passage of Scripture we're going to look at this morning, and let's see if this, this works, I began to ask this question. <laughs> I'm going to have to manually do this, I think, this morning. Hold on. I'll try this one more time. And that is this. Yeah, maybe, Jen, maybe you can help me out. You can be my little button pusher. Kind of sounded funny. She's, she's my wife, by the way, and she pushes my buttons. <laughs> anyway, I, I digress pretty quickly. All right. What version of Christianity would endure if it was based on my life? Was the question I began to actually ask. Like, if Christianity was based not on the Bible, but on my life, what version would endure, be able to endure through the hardest of times if it were based on me? That began to be a little bit of an annoying question. That got underneath me a little bit. And I don't know if it'll get underneath you in the text that we get into or not, but it got underneath me because there was a season of time in the history of the church when there was no Bible to pass on to the next generation. In the earliest development of the church, there wasn't a Bible yet. There was the Old Testament. We called that the Pentateuch. There was the law that existed. But when the New Testament was being written, it, of course, didn't yet exist. All the letters of the New Testament were not put together until decades after Christ was crucified. And so there was a period, a long period of time in the early church where what actually allowed Christianity to endure wasn't the Bible. It was both the testimony about Christ and also the testimony of the people who endured great suffering and pain. Which made me ask the question, what version of Christianity would endure today if it was based on my life right now. And so I began to process that as I got into this passage this morning. Now, I want to invite you to go into this passage with me. In 2 Timothy chapter um, 2 is where we are this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn there. If you don't own a Bible, there's one in the chairs around you. You can pull it up on your phone or on your physical Bible, whatever you want to do. But we're in this passage, uh, in, we're in 2 Timothy, and we're going to be, be hitting... Um, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 13. A little bit of a heads up. The passage is a little more confusing at parts today. This is a little bit more of a difficult passage to get around. So I'm going to do my best to summarize it. I'm going to leave a lot of questions unanswered. I'm not answering all the questions that the text raises this morning, but I'll do my best with the broad strokes of it, okay? So 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 is where we're going to be. Um, and there we go. We're good to go. And here, I'm, I'm actually just going to read the whole thing through. And then I'll come back and make a few comments on it. Beginning at verse 8, uh, Paul, who's in prison, writing to his uh, protege, Timothy, he says this, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, 
for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Is anybody confused? <laughs> so, so here's where I'd like to go back to. Here's where I'd like to go back to. Let's start back at verse 8 um, right away. This is the, kind of the opening uh, comments, comments that Paul has to make. He says, remember, remember Jesus Christ. This is where he starts to with Timothy. Like, I want you to remember, this is really just his urging. I want you to remember Jesus Christ. And what about him? Two things, he says, two phrases. He's raised from the dead and descended from David. Don't miss that. He's raised from the dead and descended from David. And here's what I take from that. He's raised from the dead, which is a miraculous reality. For Paul, this was the kingpin. He said in 1 Corinthians, if, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, our faith is futile and we're to be pitied among, above all people for our foolishness if Christ isn't raised from the dead. So he saying, Timothy, in light of what you're going to endure, I want you to remember Christ. I want you to remember that he was raised from the dead. It's miraculous. Now, skeptics will say, that's not miraculous. That's foolishness. That's mythical. That's anti-science. That doesn't happen. But that's not what Paul says. He says, I want you to remember that he was raised from the dead. And almost in a way to address the skeptics in the crowd, he adds on descended from David. He adds on a fact check to his claim. He's like, if you're not sure if the raised from the dead part is true, I want you to remember that he's descended from David so you can track it and you can decide if this is true or not. I'm going to give you a historical reference point. You can track the genealogy, genealogy of David into Jesus and you can find out and you can track it if this man was historical and if this actually happened or not because I'm not just making up a false claim. This was a miraculous event, and here's the historical reality that I want to tag to this. Jesus was both. This is both miraculous and historical at the same time. And he's saying to Timothy, I want you to remember both. This is a miracle, and it's a fact of history. Both are important. That's what I want you to remember. And he goes on, this is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal, which is where he was. Again, he's in a dungeon, kind of carved out hole in the ground, hard to find him. A ceiling is, is made for a roof in the ceiling, a roof in the ceiling. A hole in the ceiling was made for him so air can get in, right? But he's there chained. People can't find him. And this is where he's at. But he says, but God's word is not chained, verse 9. And then he says, verse 10, therefore, because of this, because of this gospel, because of Christ raised from the dead and descended from David, therefore, I endure everything. There's our word endure. I endure everything. Why? For the sake of the elect, he says. Now, that's a real question. If you're a church person or a Bible person, you're going to wonder, what does that mean for the sake of the elect? What does that even mean? And there's a lot of discussion about this, but my summary for this is this, is that the elect is actually a word that's used both in the Old Testament and then also in the New to refer to the people of God in general, okay? I'm not going to get into the whole idea of election and predestination and all those kinds of things. I don't think that's where Paul was going when he's, being, when he's writing this. I don't think that's what he was referring to here. I think what he's referring to here is the people of God. That's how this word is used. What he's saying is, I'm enduring all of this for the sake of the people of God, for the people of God who need to know 
that what I believe matters and stands and holds. It's for the future people who will yet believe. And he goes on to say, and here's why, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. In other words, I want the people of God to be able to, to look at Christ and believe that he was miraculously raised from the dead and that he was descended from David. I want them to see that. How will they see that? Maybe if we you know, get Gideon's International to, to pass out all the Bibles. Well, Gideon's wasn't around yet. What if we pass out Bibles everywhere? Well, there's no Bibles anywhere. Well, how will people believe that this is actually true if they can't read it yet because there's nothing yet to read? How are they going to believe that Jesus was actually raised from the dead and that he was descended from David? How are they going to believe it? They're going to believe it because it's written on my life. And so Paul knows if my life doesn't carry to the death the truth of this, if I don't enter into the suffering of Jesus, then future people may question whether what I said I believed was really worth it or not. Because you know when the heat gets turned up, you find out what you really are committed to and what you're not. And the heat was as turned up as it could be on Paul. He's chained in prison facing death. And he says, I'm going to endure this for the sake of the future people of God, that they too may obtain salvation that is in Christ with eternal glory, with eternal glory. This picture that Paul has in his mind that, that sin takes and removes glory from humanity and that there is a future glory that humans will receive by being in God's presence. And he's kind of looking forward to this picture of the future and saying there will be a time when we will all partake and share in the eternal glory of God and in light of that, because Christ was descended from David and raised from the dead, I'm willing to endure this suffering so that people will look at my life and say what he believed must have been true because he was willing to endure it. And then he adds this part, this trustworthy saying, because there are times, I don't know about you, but there's times for me, whenever the pressure gets turned up and I begin to question what I'm doing or how I'm doing it, there are things you have to come back to that are like your North Star. When business goes down, you come back to your business values to direct you. When your family is struggling, you come back to what's most important to you. When you're confused about your future, you may talk to a parent or a grandparent, and they'll tell you, let me just draw you back to some key things that are true about you. You got to come back to the basics when things get hard. And this is where Paul goes. He said this, of all the things that can get confusing when suffering comes in, Here's a trustworthy saying. He said, if we died with him, we'll live with him. If we endure, he'll reign, we'll reign with him. If we disown him, he'll disown us. If we're faithless, he'll remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. And again, that is kind of confusing because it seems like there's some contradictory stuff going on. Will God disown us? Wait, will he not? Wait, we're faithless? He's faithful? I'm now confused. He can't disown himself? Now I'm really confused. What's going on? Again, I'm just going to summarize this because I... I uh, you can look more into this. That's all I'm going to say, but I'm going to summarize this. First of all, this was an ancient baptismal formula, and it was something that was passed on uh, throughout the church history. Remember, Paul's writing in a dungeon. It's not like he's looking up a, like, let me check my library reference tool back here and pull a book off the shelf and, and quote it. I mean, he's just pulling from memory things that were true for him, and so this is a, a formula that is true in the, in the ancient church. He said, if we died with him, we'll live with him. If we endure, we'll reign. So it's this idea that when we are 
when we believe in Christ, we come into kind of a communion with him, with who he is, and, and there's a future um, living with him and reigning with him. And then let's take the final statement. If we're faithless, he'll remain faithful, for he can't disown himself. Meaning, and here's what I think this means, that when we make those mistakes, when we fail and fall along in our Christian walk, that there are times that we do that, that God is not going to crucify us for every time that we fail, because he can't disown his own children in that way. So there, there's that positivity. And then there's this real question when he says, if we disown him, he'll also disown us. What in the world does that mean? To me, that's a very sobering statement from Paul. It brings a sobriety to this space for me. And it, what it does is it makes me think, okay, when, if and when, the pressure gets turned up for you or for me, and I walk away from something that I claimed was important to me, you would have the right to ask me, if you're leaving because it's hard, did you ever believe it in the first place? You'd have the right to ask that, and you should. Whether that's something in my business, whether it's something in my family, whether that's my commitment to my family that I've made or commitment here that I've made or commitment to God that I've made, if when things get hard, if it's a commitment to a team, if I don't get the playing time that I want and I quit the team, you would have the right to ask the question, were you ever really committed to this in the first place? It'd be the right question to ask because hardship has a way of clarifying where our commitments really lie. And this is what I believe Paul is referring to here is that if we disown him, he's going to disown us in the sense that when, I, when, it, when it's proven to you that I'm not actually committed to the cause, you would have the right to ask, were you ever committed in the first place? When things get hard and I walk out of faith, you would have the right to say, well, were you just a Christian in name only? Or were you a Christian in behavior as well? That's a great question to ask. For, so for the person who walks when things get hard, this is what I think Paul is saying, that there's nothing really that God can do in that case if they never really were a believer in the first place. And so while they claim to know him, when they got hard, they backed out. And so how can God save someone who has never been interested in being saved in that sense? If they've never expressed true faith, then he can't really save them. So that's how I understand this. That, to me, makes sense in this passage. If you want to look into that more, let's talk more about that. But here's the question I have coming off of that. Is if this is true, if Paul is so concerned about his life and his witness, enduring in the middle of a dungeon so that the next generation of people could see that God, through Christ, has come and offered salvation to us. I want to ask the question, man, is it, is it true? Like, did it work that way? Did you ever wonder what happened after the scriptures are recorded? Like, Paul was writing in prison, we think somewhere around 60 to 65 AD. It's a long, long time ago. What happened next? Like, how do, how do we get here? How do we get here? Who were the next people, right? Well, Timothy took over, evidently. Paul died, we know that. Timothy took over. Well, what else happened? How did we build this church, and what was it like in the early church? And were some of these early, like, urgings of Paul met and followed? How did the early church endure what, what went on? Because if you know anything about history, and I'll tell you a little bit about church history, this first probably 250 years from about 60 AD to about 313 AD, there was tremendous persecution to the church. The Roman Empire was trying to adapt to a new religion, Christianity, and figure out what to do with it. And they would uh, torture people, kill some people, sometimes leave them alone because they were harmless in the corner, but sometimes pressure them in really bad ways. And how did this new religion really form? How did it really come to be? And how did it endure? And I want to tell you just a story of one guy who's really important in this, in this space. And I we got a picture of him. This was a, uh, hold on, let's see if this will work. Yeah, you can push that for me one time. 
Yep, there we go. Here's our two-dimensional picture of this guy. All right, there weren't a lot of cameras back here when uh, Ignatius lived and walked the planet, but here's actually Ignatius. He was born, believe it or not, this guy, and I don't know if he looked anything like this. He was born somewhere in 30 to 35 AD, all right? And here's what we know about Ignatius, just to, to tie into history, because we're talking about real facts that happened. We believe that Ignatius was actually one of the children, one of the legend has it, he was one of the babies referred to that Jesus actually put in the middle of his disciples and spoke about in the Gospels. Here's what we know about Ignatius. He was a disciple of John who ended up writing Revelation. He was one who was discipled also by Peter. He was the second um, bishop, if you will, in, in Rome, in Antioch, after, um, after Christ, after the disciples went on. This, this is an early guy who was impacted, who walked with some of the disciples. And Ignatius, because of the persecution that he went through in Rome, he actually was arrested because, again, Romans were persecuting Christians all the time. And so what, what happened to Ignatius is he gets into Rome, and there's some people who could come to visit him. And he had seven visitors, and he wrote seven letters. You can look this up. You can look up his seven letters and read about what he wrote. And one of those visitors that he had was a guy named Onesimus, Bishop Onesimus. And if you know anything about the Bible, there was a letter that was written to Philemon urging Onesimus to be returned to him. And so we believe Onesimus was a dude who came to visit, actually, Ignatius. And so here's what Ignatius did, because he realized that the church in Rome saw that he was in prison for his faith. And there were people in Rome who wanted to come free him. And here's what he had to say when he wrote to them. All right, here's what he had to say. He said this, I fear your kindness, which may harm me. You may be able to achieve what you plan, but if you pay no heed to my request, it will be very difficult for me to attain unto God. What a powerful first statement, right? I fear your kindness, which may harm me. I know you want to be kind. I know you want to come save me. I know you want to come pull me out of this prison right now, but hang on. You may be able to actually do it. It may work. Because you're smart enough, you're strong enough, you're going to probably be able to do this. But if you pay no heed to my request, it's going to be difficult for me to attain unto God. It's almost like Ignatius was saying, guys, I know what you want to do, but you're focused on me right now. You're not focused on the kingdom of God. You're about to try to break me out of prison. This isn't going to work. Like, I, I, don't, I don't want this. Like, I want you to do something different. I want you to, to pray for me to endure, but I don't want you to, to free me. And here's why. Here's what he said. Here's why he wanted them to pray for him instead. He said, so that I may not only be called a Christian, but also behave as such. See, Ignatius knew that the suffering and the hardship was going to refine and clarify, listen, am I, really, am I really in? Am I here for my comfort or am I here for the impact? Like what's going to actually endure? And Ignatius knew that I want to not just be called a Christian, but also behave as such. And he knew he was going to die, but he kept on going. And this is where it starts to get a little strong. He says, my love is crucified. I no longer savor corruptible food, but wish to taste the bread of God, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ, and his blood I wish to drink, which is an immortal drink. And this is why Christians were persecuted for being cannibals, by the way, when they talk like this. But if you understand communion, you understand what he's saying is, I need to taste the, the crucifixion of Christ. He died. And this is what Christians are called to do, is to die functionally. And, and I'm going to. I need to taste this, he says. Then he goes on, he puts it this way to, to wrap this part up. He says, when I suffer, I shall be free in Jesus Christ and with him shall rise again in freedom. I am God's wheat to be ground by the teeth of beasts. He knew he was going to be fed to animals so that I may be offered as pure bread of Christ. 
Here's Ignatius saying, listen, my, my future is sealed. I'm going to be thrown to the lions, basically. I'm going to suffer, but I'm going to rise again in freedom. And what I want you to do, church, is I don't want you to come break me out. I want you to pray for me. Why? And here's what he says. He says, why? Because if you remain silent about me, meaning if you don't come break me out, I shall become a word of God. But if you allow yourselves to be swayed by the love in which you hold my flesh, I shall again be no more than a human voice. Meaning that if all you are is swayed by a desire of this world to keep me with you, there's another layer that Christianity brings into the equation. Life isn't just about the temporal. It's about the eternal all of a sudden. And if all, you're done, all that happens is you're swayed by the love you hold for me, my voice will end with you. No one will hear about what I believe if you break me out. And here we are, literally here we are, almost 2,000 years later, talking about Ignatius. And here is the church, all of a sudden, 2,000 years later, expanded across the globe. Why? Because of people like Ignatius, who very early on in the generations just following Paul and Timothy, decided that their lives would be just like Paul's, that they're going to sit in prison, and when called upon, they will clarify, I am here, remember Jesus Christ, remember him, raised from the dead, descendant of David, a miracle, historical, so that there can be a future where God's people will see that there is something worth believing in beyond just this world. Now, if I'm honest, Ignatius is to be idealized, and sometimes I don't think I can replicate that. I don't know what I would do if I were in his shoes. I really don't. I feel like sometimes I can relate more to people called, the people that we call the lapsed. See, about 100, 200 years after Ignatius, there was a time when persecution lifted for a minute. And there were people who started to get comfortable about a decade or two decades or three decades where all of a sudden the pressure began to come off. And now no longer did they face the persecution from Rome. They were able to, to educate their kids freely. They were able to practice their worship freely. Their grandparents' stories of persecution and trouble all of a sudden lifted. And that's the way it was during the first couple hundred years of the church. It would press hard and then ease and press hard and ease. And one of these easing moments where it eased for a couple generations or a couple decades was, was a great relief to the church. And then... In 250 AD, a new emperor came on, and he brought the pain. For two years, for two years, he brought persecution. He died after two years, but people didn't know in the first year that he was going to die, and so he began to come back to the church, and all of a sudden, people who had gotten soft, who had gotten comfortable, whose faith just became a part of their lives, and they didn't have an edge to them, they were forced to face the question of, are we going to abandon our faith and worship the emperor, or am I going to stay? And many of them decided, I'm going to abandon because it's too much. Many of them did. Those who did not are now called the confessors of the church. If you've ever heard that term about Christians, the confessors, that's who those people were, who were taken out of the church, put before the Roman authorities, beat up, put in prison, tortured, and still held their faith. The lapsed are the people who walked. And after the emperor died, and then persecution was lifted again, those people came back to the church. They said, hey, knock, knock on the front door. Can you let me back in? 
Actually, I was just kidding about walking away from Christ. Can you, can you let me back in? And the church wrestled with that for a very long time. And if I'm honest, I can relate more, I think, to the lapsed than I can to Ignatius. I can relate more to the fact that when it's not comfortable, I can't tell you what I'm going to do until maybe I'm in it myself. But here's what I do know. That if Christianity was built on the faith of the lapsed, I don't think we would be here today. I don't think we would be here today. I don't think it would endure if we didn't have people like Ignatius, which is why I asked the question that I did. Hang on. I think it's, go back. There we go. There we go. I think it's actually working again. I go back to this question. What version of Christianity would endure if it was based on my life? What about you? What version of Christianity would be here if it was based on my life? Not on the Bible, but on my life. Because Paul bet his life on it. He absolutely bet his life on it. Ignatius bet his life on it. So that future people like you and future people like me would be able to say, you know what? They faced the ultimate, and they held on. Now, this is a really big question, and so I decided I need to break this down a little bit more, get a little more under the surface, and I broke it down into four more questions. This is I like questions. I don't ever have answers, by the way, but I do like asking questions. Here's four more questions behind this. If I'm going to ask this question, let me drill it down a little bit more and, and give you these four questions to consider in your own life as you think about this, because this is a big question. What would, I, I don't know. I mean, it might be interesting. It might endure. I don't know. Hard to say. Let me, let me push a little bit. A couple questions underneath that. Let me ask you this question. What am I praying for? When you have the freedom to pray for whatever you want to pray for, what we pray for reveals what we value. What we pray for reveals what we're hoping for. So if I were to ask you the question, it, if it's true, go back to my, my guys on the basketball team breathing hard and heavy like that, right? If comfort and impact can't live together really well, they're, they're two opposite extremes. Am I praying for things that will make me and my family more comfortable? Or am I praying for things that will make my faith more impactful? If I can juxtapose those two, if I can put those two things at odds. If comfort and impact are different, what am I praying for? Am I praying for things that are going to make me comfortable? going to reunite people? They're going to bring peace, and I'm all for, for that, but I'm talking about things that am I primarily concerned in my prayers with comfort? Am I concerned for impact? Let me ask this other question. What am I dreaming about in your spare time? When you're, when you're free, you've got a free weekend, you've got time to think, you're driving somewhere, you're just relaxing, you're dreaming about your future, dreaming about what could be. Am I dreaming about comfort? <laughs> am I dreaming about how to, how to plan a future life where things are lined up? Am I dreaming about impact? The two can't live well together. Again, I'm not talking about rest and, and renewal. We all need that. I'm talking about comfort. How am I spending time is the third question. With the time that you have, the time that I have, how is that time being spent? Is it spent more with things that are going to make me comfortable or things that are going to make an impact on my faith? And finally, this question as well, if I can mess with it even a little bit more in a loving way, as loving as this can sound, how am I spending money? Because what you spend your money on and what I spend my money on, what I give to or don't give to, reveals my values. These are all values questions, just phrased in different ways. What am I praying for? What am I dreaming about? How am I spending time? And how am I spending money? Because this question, I think, ultimately is one that I have to ask and that Paul was pressing on for all Christians. What version of Christianity would actually endure if it was based on my life? And what I do with my time, what I do with my money, what I do with my passions and dreams, and what I pray for? Paul put it that way in Romans, or in 2 Timothy 2, the passage we just read. He said, here's what I want you to remember, Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ. Raised from the dead. Descended from David. Remember that. Remember that when you think about your annual budget. 
Remember that when you think about your future dreams. Remember that when you think about your family. Remember that when you pray. Remember that when you're, when you're wondering about what could be and how you spend your time. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember even Ignatius who said, guys, don't just come free me from my pain. Pray for me in it, that I may endure. Because Christians don't just have this life to look forward to, but the future eternal glory. And that's what we live for. Remember Jesus Christ. Raised from the dead for life eternal. Descended from David. Fact check it if you want to. And Paul said, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that we may someday attain to eternal glory that we were made for. So, let me ask you this question I asked me. What version of Christianity would endure if it was based on my life, if it was based on yours? Let's pray. Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the example of the lives of people like Paul and Timothy and even Ignatius, some of these early church leaders who helped carry this hope of Christ in powerful, profound ways to the death, who endured for the sake of the elect, for the sake of God's people, that we can look back today and say, man, those guys must have really believed this. That's worth looking at. They went to the death for this thing. They didn't walk away. That's worth considering then how I'm going to spend my life. My life is my time. It's my money. It's my relationships. It's my dreams. It's my prayers. It's going to impact how I spend these things. And so I pray that you would give us the courage to ask these questions about our own life in comparison to eternity. So we thank you for the gift of Christ to break into this mortal life and give us a hope and dream of immortality. So we thank you for the future and what that means for us in the present. Give us courage to live well and to love well through this. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.